This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from the China Project. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, co-founder of the Manor Companion Graded Reader Series, longtime resident of China, and there's two types of people I hate, those who judge others and hypocrites. My co-host is John Pazin, co-founder of Manor Companion, founder of All Set Learning, the Chinese Grammar Wiki, Sinosplice.com, and his therapist said he abandons relationships at the first sign of discord. So he went and got a new therapist. We all come into language learning with different expectations. John and I are going to talk about common expectations many learners have versus the reality of the language. Guest interview is with Dan Stevenson, consultant, China watcher, and has his fingers in almost as many pies as I do. Let's get to it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah in the United States. Hey everybody, my name is John Pasden and I am in Shanghai, China. How's it going? Well, John, last episode was our 100th episode, so this is our 101st, so it's uh, You Can Learn Chinese 101. But this is not a boring college lecture. No, sir, it is not. We've got a great show lined up, but before we cut into that, we do have a listener review. Uh, this comes from a wonderful comment on Facebook from an avid listener, uh, Andy. He says, wonderful podcast. I'm pretty sure I've listened to all 100 episodes. And the weird thing is, I have no intention of ever learning Chinese, truly. My languages of interest happen to be Russian, Hebrew, and Czech. But somehow or another, I caught a few episodes of your show two years ago, and to my delight, found them vastly superior to all the other language acquisition podcasts out there. Naturally, I love the dad joke humor and the camaraderie you boys have, but the biggest revelation is Jared's expert handling of interviews. Oh, shucks. His questions are short and insightful, and most importantly, he gives guests time and room to answer fully, keeping focus squarely on the guests. I figure, heck, if these folks can pick up Chinese, surely I can pick up Russian. Your emphasis on comprehensible input and extensive reading is right in line with mine, and many of your pieces of advice in the first half of the show are surprisingly relevant to the learning acquisition of other languages. The editing and sound quality are also top-notch. Thanks, Kaiser. Congrats on reaching 100 episodes. I will certainly stay with you. Five stars out of five. Well, thanks, Andy. We really appreciate that. Nice. Thanks, Andy. Actually, you know, I learned uh, I learned Hebrew back in college. Not a lot, but I learned a bit. That was cool. Really fun. I was really impressed with that because, I mean, hey, he's not even learning Chinese, and he's getting a lot out of the podcast. So, hey, uh, I guess... That says share, share this podcast with your other language learning friends, whatever language they're learning. Okay, so let's get into today's topic. Today we're talking about learning Chinese, the expectations versus the reality. Um, this is something that uh, I think a lot of us have dealt with. It's something that really is relevant to the beginners out there. But I think even after you've been studying for a while, um, a lot of this stuff is still relevant. So we're going to go through a bit of a list here of these expectations and the realities. That's right. And I got to say, well, I'm going to start with the one of the most classic expectations about learning Chinese, I guess, even with any old language almost, it's, uh, is the length of time to learn. Oftentimes, you'll hear out there a lot of people saying, hey, you can learn this language in three months, fluent in three months, or, you know, I, I'm going to go out there and learn Chinese in just a year. It's, you know, how hard can it really be? Uh, so the expectation might be that, yeah, I'm going to get fluent uh, real fast. I'm going to study or I'm, I'm just going to be good at languages and I'm, I'm going to do this. Reality oftentimes is quite different. Yeah. And 
nobody really learns Chinese because it's easy, right? So you kind of just need to to take whatever time it takes. Um, but yeah, it's typically not less time than you thought. And all those like, you know, learn Chinese in two days, those things are, are probably not going to do the trick. The reality is, yes, it does take a lot of time. And you know, a lot of people will use that idealistic term fluent. I call it the F word. And it's uh, what does it really mean anyway, right? What does it mean to be fluent in a language? That can often take a uh, a significant long-term time commitment to have that idealistic uh, ability to be fluent and just, you know, converse about anything, pick it up as you do in your native language. But I think uh, that being able to actually have some real goals. So, you know, what do you want to be in three months or a year? What do you actually want to accomplish? That's that's better realistic goals or, or a term to use. Yeah, so it's not all bad news. I mean, there are there are happy milestones that you can celebrate uh, on the way. So it's just not necessarily fluency being the first one. Absolutely. So for me, I think uh, one of the main things for me, my expectations versus my reality, when I started learning Chinese, I had already learned some Spanish to a pretty decent level. I had learned some Japanese and studied in Japan. And I was like, all right, time to master this Chinese. And I studied Chinese for three semesters, and I kind of knew my opinion, and I basically knew the sounds of the language and the four tones. And I have to admit, I had taken some shortcuts, but I figured my pronunciation was good enough. I knew it was kind of mediocre, but I figured, you know, a little rough around the edges, I'll just get to China, it'll all be fine. So I expected that communication would be pretty much okay for simple things. And the reality was that my mediocre pronunciation was actually pretty bad and people couldn't understand anything I was saying a lot of the time. So I really had to go back to that pronunciation and really hit it hard to learn it right so I could kind of start over, you know, on on decent footing. I think a great way to relate to this is think about someone who might have trouble speaking English or whatever your native language is, and they have bad pronunciation. And you're like, what, what, what? And once you finally understand what they were saying, and oh, it makes sense. It's kind of like one of those things, if uh, if there were subtitles, you could read those subtitles, and then you'd hear them like, oh, yeah, okay, I, I get what they're saying. But like, <laughs> without that, <laughs> people... But I think it's worse than that, because, you know, I've been studying Spanish and Japanese, and those are two languages where if your pronunciation is kind of bad but mostly okay people can usually figure out what you're trying to say but uh chinese is not quite like that that's true we have one of those particular aspects called tones right ah yes tones so a big part of pronunciation but uh did you have unrealistic expectations for tones jared well, honestly, I was a little bit naive about it when I got into it. I was like, oh, how hard can it be, right? You know, so one of my expectations was I'm a musical guy. You know, I, I, I can play guitar, I sing, and I some other instruments. And, you know, I've grown up with music my whole life. Tone shouldn't be that hard, right? It shouldn't take a lot of effort and practice for me to get them right. Uh, reality is it didn't help a lot, <laughs> We actually did a whole episode on this, but uh, but maybe it helps you understand some of the familiarity, the the but the actual practice of hitting those and doing it right, hitting your tones right consistently, takes a lot of practice and, and continual effort. So with regards to tones, my expectations were kind of different from yours, Jared, because 
I expected tones to be hard and I didn't think I would be good at them and I was not great at them. I don't have a very musical ear. And so I worked hard on those tones. But what I expected was that after I got those four tones down, you know, the main four tones, that it would all kind of fall into place. But really it was just the first step of a uh, uncomfortably tall staircase. And so, you know, the, the good news is that there is like nowadays, you know, tone pairs and different types of tone exercises. You can find your way. Like that's something we do at All Set Learning, right? But at the time, I, I really thought that I just needed to learn four tones, get those down, and then everything would just, you know, fall in place. But it's a little trickier than that. Okay, how about grammar? Um, I think a lot of us have heard, oh, Chinese has no grammar. Of course it has grammar. It has grammar. If it didn't have grammar, then anything you said would be grammatical. So for me, the expectation of, of grammar would be that, you know, it's not very hard and I'll just keep adding it bit by bit and, you know, I'll have perfect grammar. Um, but actually fairly early on, I was surprised because the word order is not exactly the same as English. So there are some fairly basic sentences that kept tripping me up over and over again. And I was like, man, Chinese grammar is so easy. Why do I keep getting the sentence order wrong? I still do that, John. <laughs> I was just with my, well, my tutor the other day and you're going over something. I should know this. And I'm like, ah, yeah, I'm, I'm, sometimes I still approach it because I'm not living in China. You know, I'm not getting all that constant practice. And sometimes I'm still using my way I speak English, that grammar mindset, and I'm trying to use that and approaching that to Chinese. But regardless, the rules simple or not, they still have the rules. And if you don't say it right, then your grammar's wrong. Yeah, I think the reality is also that a lot of the grammar is pretty easy and straightforward, but there are some tricky things. Uh, word order is one of them. Also things like le, you know, really, really getting the hang mm -hmm. of that. Um, so it's not all easy and it's it's worth uh studying at certain points in your studies for sure i will say something i am constantly coming across are new grammar elements now there may not be very complex grammar elements but they're new and i'm like oh i didn't even realize this or you know sometimes i'm asking my tutor I'm like well, I, I didn't quite understand this what's going on I, I got all these characters and i understand the words but i don't understand the meaning I'm like oh this is a new grammar element i'm like oh Okay. And then she sends me a link to the Chinese grammar wiki that, you know, has that whole element explained. And I'm like, ah, okay. So yeah, easy and not, but there's always that long tail of <laughs> grammar elements, I would imagine for. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. There is a long tail. Okay. One expectation that I had come in with on, on Chinese was uh, that characters are too hard. Okay. Uh, they look like spooky animals. You know, you, you can't learn them or it's going to be too hard to learn to read Chinese characters. Expectation. Oh, the reality, it may be challenging at the beginning. In fact, characters, you know, it, they, they're not the easiest thing in the world to learn, but they're learnable. That's the reality. And, uh, and actually learning characters can really help accelerate your Chinese once you get past some of those early stages. Yeah, so my expectation was a little different because, you know, I had studied Japanese first, so characters weren't so unfamiliar. And I just kind of felt like there's a lot of characters, so I just need to keep learning them one by one. You know, whether it's with flashcards or whatever, just keep, you know, 
keep your head down, keep studying those characters, and eventually you'll have enough, and it'll all add up, and everything will be fine. You know your characters. But what I wasn't expecting is the reality is after you hit like a couple hundred, it starts to get hard to to remember like, wait, is this new or did I learn this? Is this the same as that one? And it starts to get a little confusing. I wasn't really expecting that. But then the other thing I wasn't expecting hit, which is that the characters actually do reinforce themselves. If you pay attention to the structure, if you really look at the component parts of different characters you're learning and notice how a lot of times their pronunciations are similar, that it's this... It's this mysterious, self-reinforcing system. And it actually does get easier once you have enough you know, critical mass. Um, but there's kind of a point in the middle where it starts to feel really hard. So I wasn't expecting that kind of uh, learning curve. Definitely. I will say that is something I do enjoy about Chinese characters, is that once you get a lot of those basic building blocks under your belt, uh, that you start seeing them again and again. Now, sometimes that does help you guess the meaning or the pronunciation of a character. That's a little bit more of an advanced ability, I would say. But, uh, but if you keep learning the characters, that does come along and you start... Oh, it, it's great because you can start making more of those associations and connections between lots of different characters. That being said, there are some of those characters that, you know, I'm like, I swear that these two characters are the same. And then, you know, you... you, you closely compare them and you realize, oh, wait a second, this just has a slightly different length of stroke here and or, <laughs> or has this little small extra component. No, these are different. Yeah, and I think it's a really great moment when you have one of these characters where maybe you've heard it before, but you've never seen it written and you see it and you just know what it is. Or maybe you see the character and you can guess how to pronounce it. Or maybe you see a new character and you don't know how to pronounce it, but you know exactly what it means. Like those are all really nice moments that it takes a while to get to, but very satisfying for sure. Okay, and then I think related to characters, another expectation I might have had in the beginning was that, you know, I have to learn the proper stroke order and write everything by hand, and every new character I learn, I need to write over and over again in my notebook, and that eventually I'm going to be like this old sage, you know, my handwriting is going to look like calligraphy <laughs> because I've been writing characters for so long, and, you know... And the reality is, especially living in China, that I that I hardly ever write characters, but I don't actually need to. That's right. You can learn characters without learning to handwrite. And I've had people ask me, says, well, how can that be? Like, how could you know a character but be unable to handwrite it? I'm like, same way you can read a word and not know how to spell it. <laughs> I mean... Like, automatopoeia. All right, I can read that word, but uh, I'm going to have a hard time spelling. In fact, I did try to have, spell this like a couple weeks ago, and I'm like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, I've got it wrong. Yeah, so we actually did a podcast on this very topic about learning characters and learning to type them instead of learning to write them by hand. And it actually has advantages. It is legit. There are studies on it, so you can check out that podcast if you want. Um, I, I do think some handwriting is good. You should learn the basic stroke order, and if you like it, great. But don't think that you're going to have to have, you know, volumes and volumes of handwritten characters, you know, just after your, your first couple years of learning Chinese. Some people like that. Okay, great. If that's what floats your boat and uh, gets you motivated to learn Chinese handwriting characters, go for it. But uh, don't feel like you have to do it. And if it becomes like a, a something dragging you down into the pit of despair, then just, hey, move on, 
Sure, learn how to write a few things, as John just said, but just don't make that your sole focus and spend all your time doing that. Because the reality is, is that it's not necessarily going to help you learn characters faster. Okay, and on the topic of characters, another uh, expectation that you sometimes hear is that, like, I can learn 2,000 characters or something like that, and then I can just instantly read a newspaper and it's all comprehensible and, you know, just fun and easygoing. The reality is that that's just kind of a, a number and every newspaper article is different. They're usually focused on a specific topic. And um, if you really want to be able to read the news, it's probably not 2,000. That's the number if you want to be able to read any article. But the good news is if you want to focus on a certain topic, then you can learn that vocabulary and those characters, and you don't need to worry so much about that, that general 2,000 number. Definitely. And I, I even think uh, on those newspaper articles, 2,000, you know, hey, that might be good enough to uh, get the gist, but have, really have no idea what's going on. Uh, <laughs> maybe not exactly, but in newspaper articles, you definitely have that long tail of characters. You know, there's the, those specific topics. So, you know, John, definitely, as you're saying, it's, it's, hey, in a focus area, that might be good enough. Say I'm really interested in electronics or some industry something, right? And, and that's what your focus is, and you learn a lot of those characters in that area. So, yeah, may, maybe so. Um, but you're right. If you want to have just that general knowledge of Chinese 2,000 characters, yeah, it's going to get you pretty far, but it's not going to get you all the way. But the reality is is that you also don't have to learn 2,000 characters in order, order to read something. Um, obviously, Manor Companion is a great example of, you know, we've got books that use only 150 basic characters. So, you know, if you are just even at those early stages and you only got a few hundred characters, uh, you can read books in Chinese. And Manor Companion is not the only series. And there's lots of other apps and, and leveled uh, content out there that you can consume, which we do recommend you consume. That's going to help you move faster up the ladder to learning more characters and getting closer to native content. And a lot of people kind of arbitrarily choose reading a newspaper as a goal when in reality they don't really want to read the news in Chinese. So a lot of goals are much more achievable, much more interesting, much more enjoyable. So that's good news as well. Another expectation is I'm going to learn Chinese and I'll be able to order in Chinese at a restaurant. The reality is that a lot of Chinese dishes have very specific names and maybe, you know, characters that you're not going to commonly encounter um, unless maybe you're spending a lot of time in China. Uh, so the reality is, is that you may not know all of these things in Chinese, and especially in early and intermediate stages, you're going to be a lot of jugga, 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 you know. Yeah. <laughs> but what it does happen is, I have experienced this, is that sometimes knowing Chinese, even just a little bit, it can unlock a secret menu at restaurants. You're talking about in the U.S.? Yes, in the U.S. and, and around the world. I've, I've heard this. You know, I've had some people from France tell me, hey, you can go to the Chinese restaurant. If you do know some of the things to ask for, you can get that secret menu. In fact, this happened to me recently a couple months ago when some friends to a Chinese restaurant uh, here in the States and uh, we started speaking to them in Chinese, and they legit brought us the Chinese menu. Now, even for us, it was a little bit of a to struggle through on uh, some of those aspects. I'm like, not entirely clear what this dish is, but we, we had a good idea, and we talked to the waiter about it, and he recommended some things, and we, we got some good, good food. So we, we did get the secret Chinese menu. It was awesome. But if you do want to be able to read Chinese menus, you can. It's just a different goal than reading a newspaper, right? You really got to focus on that food vocabulary. 
Definitely. Okay, and then Jared, another expectation I had, and this is after the original one, thinking that my mediocre pronunciation was going to be fine. Um, that really taught me a lesson in humility. I really focused on my pronunciation, my vocabulary, just you know, stringing sentences together so I could have a basic conversation. But for a while, I was still really shy, thinking, oh, no, my Chinese still isn't good enough. I can't, I don't dare try to talk to Chinese people again. But in reality, like, Chinese people are so nice, and they're so happy to talk to you in Chinese if they can understand at least some of what you're saying. So once you're past the very beginning, like, really hard to understand broken Chinese, and you can actually have basic conversations, like, so many people are so nice and, and you know, encouraging and, and happy to talk to me. So I think for a while, like, when I was in China, I was too timid and uh, there's lots of great opportunities to talk to people. Definitely. So if you are expecting or afraid that people are going to make fun of you or think less of you about your poor Chinese, and your Chinese is always going to be poor, right? Uh, metaphorically speaking. The reality is, is that Chinese people are incredibly encouraging and they're supportive of Chinese language learners everywhere. So, hey, just get out there and try it because this is, this is actually a good thing. But come on, Jared, let's be real. You were never, ever shy about using your Chinese, were you? Uh, well, there's been times, you know. Yeah, I've got times. I've never know. seen it, folks. <laughs> and on that note, John, there are some who are afraid and maybe have that expectation that I'll have no one to speak with that I'll, in order to practice this Chinese language with. The reality is that there are literally Chinese people all over the world and even if there's no one in your immediate vicinity, there are so many ways to now connect with uh, Chinese people, uh, you know, with WeChat and or, or tutors, and there's all sorts of like language exchange platforms and apps out there that, yeah, you can get out there and practice your Chinese and have a lot of opportunities, as many opportunities as you go out and find, because they are there, and it's a lot easier than it was even 10 years ago. So the reality is... You can learn Chinese, guys. All right, now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And today our sponsor is Mandarin Companion, easy to read Chinese novels. Today we are announcing and confirming the release of our brand new level two graded reader, Sherlock Holmes and a Scandal in Shanghai. So this is another Gao Ming, you know, Sherlock Chinese adapted story. But instead of being level one, like the one before, it is now level two. And it's another great story. If any of you are familiar with the original Sherlock Holmes story, A Scandal in Bohemia, we took that basic premise of the story and we adapted this one to China. Yeah, so we do this with all of our books. But this one is set in 1920s Shanghai, like, like the other one. And... Everything is Chinese. We do have some foreigners in the story too, but um, it's a great story and you should definitely check it out. One thing I really like about this story, John, is, is how much research we did uh, to find real historical figures that go into this story. It's pretty cool. And we had help from a researcher, right? That's right, Megan Amirati. She was a guest on one of our earlier shows. She uh, was She's more of an expert in early Chinese cinema and she was helped us point in the right direction. And so we actually have a real historical figure who's a, a Chinese movie star uh, in the story. And it's pretty cool. So that is now available in print and ebook formats, right? That's right. 
as of this recording, it is available in all ebook formats except on Kindle. We're working on that, but it should be there soon. So you can go out and get it today. Sherlock Holmes, A Scandal in Shanghai, a Manor Companion Level 2 graded reader using only 450 basic characters. All right, now it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today? Do you have a rant or do you have a rave? I have a rave, Jared. It's a very simple rave. It's about food again. But um, I think this one's pretty cool. So I remember when I first came to China around the year 2000, um, I had this one dish which was called guoba, which is rice crust. Like when you Mm. cook rice and it gets, you know, crunchy on the edges. Like That's that stuff, stuff was like a kind of food. And over the years, I've seen this stuff evolve from, you know, something that you can sometimes get in restaurants to now it's almost like like a potato chip. Like you can get all kinds of guaba on, you know, online and grocery stores. And it's actually really good. Like I never was very crazy about, you know, Chinese snacks. But these, and they're made from rice, they're, are really good. Um so I don't know if you can get this in other countries. It's fairly new, even in China, but I wow. really like it. It's a great Chinese snack. Probably not very healthy, but good. Wow. I, I'm going to try some when I finally make it out there. That sounds kind of good, actually. Yeah, I'll put, a, uh, I'll put some pictures up on my blog. We can link to that. Um, so if you guys see it, you can, you can try it out. Trust me, it's good. If you like, uh, you know, chips. Sign me up. All right, so Jared, what do you got? Rant or rave? I've got a rave, John. Uh, this is something we've been working on a long time, uh, oh. but it's finally here. Um, we just launched a brand new website for Manor Companion. We've been working on this for too long. I agree. <laughs> Very long. Very new long. New branding. New website. New branding. <laughs> new everything for Manor Companion. So if you check out mannercompanion.com, you're going to see all the brand new website. Um, we rebranded all of our books. The book covers look entirely different. Um, We've got all new sections on that site. We've launched a resources section for all of our books that's going to have links to like, uh, you know, word lists, samples, uh, links to the Chinese grammar wiki for, you know, all the, every book, um, as well as we're collecting other like resource materials that people have created for the books, like, you know, study workbook sheets, things like that. Um, yeah, so we've the, got this... the website is more useful than ever for you readers. Absolutely. And for teachers. Yeah, especially for teachers. One thing that's really cool about the site, we have a level finder tool. So it, you can uh, go on and click on that and you can find uh, your level. Uh, so it's it's kind of based on statistical sampling methods uh, and our Manor Companion levels to kind of identify, hey, well, and so far it's turning out pretty good. It's, it seems to be pretty pretty right on. We've tested it quite a bit. How long does that take to test your level? So far, usually within 20 characters, it can assess your level, which is pretty cool. And pretty quick. Pretty quick, yeah. So, uh, yeah, go check out our website, guys, our new website, mannercompanion.com. And while you're there, you can find links to where to get our books if you haven't gotten any yet uh, because they're pretty dang awesome. And if you go there, the most recent blog post talks about the new website, about an all-brand-new Manor Companion website. At the very end, you're going to see a picture of John and I standing in front of the actual bus stop where we met. 
I hate that picture. That is not a good picture of me, Jared. John, you look amazing. You got like your Asian fro going on. All right. Anyway, the the blog post is good though. But you look good too, John. Really love your room here, man. You got all these books everywhere. Yeah, there's there's large piles of books here in my study, and a lot of them have something to do with China. I like how they're arranged according to color. And theme in here too. Makes it hard to find the one you're looking for if you know the name but not the color. But it's a good place to read, and I do a lot of reading on on ancient and modern China here in this room. That's Dan Stevenson. He welcomed me into his home study in the heart of Salt Lake City for the first in-person interview I've done since the start of the pandemic. My name's Dan Stevenson. I'm born and raised in Salt Lake City, Utah, USA, and I spent nine years living and working in Beijing. Today I work in strategic advisory and consulting. I have a firm called Economic Bridge International with a Chinese partner, and we help Chinese and American companies primarily to internationalize and to develop their strategic planning and government relations strategies. We met about five years ago at a China-focused event in Utah. I've learned bits and pieces of his story over the years, but it was time to get the full picture of how China and the language has so profoundly impacted his life. Stay with us. Dan, why did you start learning Chinese? I started learning Chinese because I became fascinated with China after a trip there in the year 2000. My father, Howard Stevenson, was a state senator here in Utah, and he was invited to speak in China at an education conference. And the conference invited several hundred students from China, from the U.S., and from Russia to attend. And at this conference, all the American kids like me wanted to explore the Beijing nightlife and get out and explore the city. The Russian students seemed content to just avoid the American and Chinese students. <laughs> and the Chinese students saw this as a great opportunity to practice their English and to network and to build relationships and so forth. Very pragmatic, as you might expect. Yeah. My father was there with me. My mother was there too, and a couple of friends. And one of the things that really struck my father and later me was that there was a huge gap in terms of being able to speak each other's languages. Most of the mm. Russians didn't speak mm. Chinese or English. Most of the Americans spoke no Russian or Chinese. And the Chinese students were pretty fluent in English, which was quite an incredible thing for us because this was all of our first time to China. And so we had impressions in our mind of a China sort of stuck in the Cultural Revolution era in the 70s. And we were introduced to a very different China than we thought we would be visiting. Wow. So how old were you at that time? 23, 24, about to start my last year at the University of Utah, where I was studying economics. And so when I came back to study in the fall, I took as many Chinese-related classes as I could, because the experience of being in Beijing and seeing that city and seeing the hustle and bustle and the vibrancy and just looking around and seeing so many things that I didn't know anything about. And so that sort of sparked curiosity in my mind. And so I came back to the University of Utah, studied Chinese foreign policy, Chinese history, and took a Chinese 101 course. Here in your last year, I'm going to wrap up. I'm ready to graduate. Wait, 
Wait. Now I'm interested yeah. in Chinese. Let's start learning this instead, right? Exactly. I'm curious to know a little bit more about this trip, though, that you went to China. Okay, you're 23. It sounded like this trip was mainly for high school students. Is that right? It or? was for college students. Oh, yeah. so it was for college uh-huh. students. Okay, yeah. great. You tell me a bit about, hey, there was a little diversity and different experiences and language abilities among the different segments of students. But did you have something during your time there in China that really impacted you? One day during the conference, this was like three days, and anybody who's been to a conference in China, I think, can probably imagine some of this in their mind. One big room, big podium, speakers, and so forth. And so, of course, I felt obligated to stick around for my father's speech. But as soon as that was over, he started to be mobbed by Chinese students in the back of the room who wanted to talk with him. And so I took that as a chance to escape the conference with a couple of friends (laughs) that I had made from the American cohort. Let's and go check out Beijing. Let's right? go check out Beijing in yeah. the middle of the day and wandering down the streets near Guomao and stumbling into a supermarket, trying to identify things. I mean, think everybody who's been to a Chinese supermarket can relate to that of trying to figure out what's here, how much do things cost and all that sort of stuff. So yeah. I was starting to think of myself in this environment and think if I lived in China, how would I cope? How would I deal with this? How would I get around? How would I communicate? How would I understand what was going on? Just a whole new experience is what it sounds like. Totally new experience. It was my first time in Asia. I was really blown away by the whole thing. So I came back to the University of Utah. And while I was studying there in my final year, I became aware of a scholarship to study in China for six months. At this time, my plan was to go to law school after college. And so I thought, is there anything I can do that can make me look more windswept and interesting to a law school (laughs) admissions board? And I thought... Studying in China might do it. And so I applied for the scholarship and they gave it to me. And so I waited to discover where I would be sent. Mm. They didn't tell you where you would go. But I really hit the lottery and ended up at Tsinghua University in Beijing. Oh, yeah. Those who are not familiar, Tsinghua is also referred to as the Harvard of China, right? Yeah, Yeah, the Harvard of China, the MIT of China, whatever superlative you can give. And it was right in the hustle and bustle of Beijing, and very privileged and fortunate to have that experience. So it sounds like you had a semester of Chinese? A semester, yeah. Okay, and now you're in China, thrown right into the fire right here. So what was this like? Your second time, so it wasn't like it was an entirely new experience. You knew a little bit more what to expect this time, but what was this like? I thought to myself, I should be able to live for six months anywhere and in almost any condition. I should be able to handle that. I'd lived abroad before, And of course, when I got to Beijing, a friend of my father's picked me up at the old Beijing capital airport and drove me through Beijing to Tsinghua to help me to register. And this friend of my father's walked me in there and helped me find where I was supposed to go. And I came into the registration office and I was struck how there were one or two computers in a room full of six or seven desks. The setup was fairly old school, and this was in the summer of 2002. So they were trying to write my name in the registration rolls, and they asked me if I had a Chinese name, and I had always used just the single character, Dan, that means red. So I just said, how about that? And they said, oh, no, that won't do. That's one character. <laughs> they said, what's your last name? And my full name is Daniel Stevenson, and so they came up with Shurdiwen Dan. <laughs> oh, okay. Far too many characters yeah. for a beginning Chinese student to write. And so as soon as I got into the classroom setting... I abandoned the three other characters and just kept the last one. So I'm a single character guy. 
Nice, nice. I realized this when I went to China. You know, you want to write your full English name. Oftentimes, the space to write your name in, it's four or five characters max. Exactly. And that's the main reason why I abandoned my Tsinghua given name in that registration room is because when we started taking tests and quizzes in class, most of my fellow classmates were either Chinese American or Japanese or Korean. And so by the time I'd finished writing my name, most of the other students were done with the quiz. So I realized (laughs) pretty quick I had to either get better at writing my name or make it shorter and easier to do so. Yeah, that's great. And you mentioned here you got classmates from Japan and other areas. I hear stories about that, especially with having Japanese classmates. They already know characters. You know, they're more familiar with Chinese because they're more exposure than we would have in the West. So what was this learning experience like? The courses that I was taking were extremely challenging for me, having just one semester of Chinese under my belt. And most of my other classmates, as you mentioned, the Japanese students, very, very familiar with characters. And most of the Korean students were too. At that time, the nearest sort of center closest to Tsinghua University is Wudaoko. Mm -hmm. And that used to be called Koreatown. And so a lot of Korean students would come for a year and take a private tutor and improve their skills, and then join the beginning Chinese classes. So the beginning. <laughs> yeah. So I, it was great for them. I'm sure their Chinese skills improved massively, and they were able to ask questions of the teacher on the first day in Chinese, which I thought, wait a second, am I in the wrong class here? <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> yeah. The other interesting thing about living in the student dormitory on the Tsinghua campus was that there were three levels to the dormitory. And on my level, which is the middle level, all of my neighbors, surrounding neighbors, were North Koreans who were studying at Tsinghua University. Oh, that's really interesting. I have met a few North Koreans in my time in China, and I was like, very curious. (laughs) What was that like? It was fascinating. Of course, they had the pictures hanging in the room at the appropriate heights and in the appropriate places. And whenever they went out, they were wearing their pins, the great leader or the dear leader. And most of them acted as if I didn't exist. But some of them I had a lot of interactions with. As I'm sure many people know, in North Korea, it's a very sort of hierarchical society. And so the youngest members of the North Korean student group, you know, they would be assigned to prepare meals for all of their elders. Really? And so when I would go into the kitchen space, there would be North Koreans in there who were chopping up endless piles of vegetables (laughs) or really putting in the work to make meals. And... A couple of these students became friendly with me, and it was interesting to see how that friendship started and stopped. They became really, really curious when all of their fellow North Koreans would leave the room or be far away. Mm. And then they'd be real friendly and real talkative Mm -hmm. and want to practice their English and ask me all sorts of questions, and I'd ask them questions. And then, of course, once another North Korean came into the room, it's really something to see them turn it off like that. Wow. You're talking with somebody one second and then another person they know comes into the room and it's like you don't exist. It's a really incredible thing. You might be talking about someone and then they enter the room and it's, oh, change subject, right? Yeah, kind of like that. But it's more, it's like, I don't even know you now, right? Yeah, I don't know you. We haven't ever spoken. But I think that's one of the interesting unexpected experiences that I've had is that I imagine that I've probably had more interactions with North Korean people than most people in the United States, even those who study North Korea. Yeah, I would think so. I would think so. 
That is fascinating. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your educational experience there. I think this is interesting to talk about because I've heard a lot of stories about educational methods at universities. We're rewinding 20 years now, so we're not exactly very progressive or modern educational methods. Tell me a little bit about that experience, and maybe you could contrast it to some things you maybe even know better now, right? Better methods than maybe what you went through. Sure. The classroom setup was four hours of instruction a day. There were two classes in the morning and two in the afternoon and lunch in between. So the great thing about it was I had a substantial part of the day that was left to myself, which I imagine could have been really useful to really hit the books and be very diligent in studying. For me personally, I felt since most of my classmates were so far ahead of me in the writing and reading game, to be honest, I didn't put my full effort into those areas because I felt like, okay, if I have any hope of learning this language... It's got to be through understanding what people say to me and being able to respond. And if I can learn to read and write, then that's a bonus. But I was thinking more practically in terms of how can I make the best of this situation and actually connect with Chinese people. It's probably not going to be through writing letters or reading what they've written. Yeah. When I would leave my morning classes and head to lunch, at this point, I knew almost no Westerners in Beijing. And Mm. at this point in time, there were only a a couple of thousand, I think, American students studying in China. Mm. And so when I would go to the canteen during lunchtime, I had no idea what to order. And (laughs) there was no English menu, if you can believe that, uh, in the foreign students' building. (laughs) Jogo, jogo, yeah. Yeah, that was exactly, I was the jogo orderer. And it was amazing. It was like lunchtime lottery, you know, like (laughs) you never knew what was coming out was a challenge, right? I mean, it was a huge challenge. You know, the first month was really tough. I mean, the cultural differences were challenging because I was in the far northwest corner of Beijing and the expat district or the more westernized portions of Beijing were very far away. But I was really fortunate. I started to meet other foreign students who were studying at Tsinghua and there used to be a fantastic bar at the west gate of Tsinghua called Loop Chant. Mhm. And so that sort of became my hangout spot because that was really a place where I could sort of relax a little bit and meet with other foreigners in China. And it sort of was like an informal sort of support group. Other foreigners who had been there for much longer, who spoke amazing Chinese, at least in my mind, would be like, oh, okay, so I see that person from New Zealand or from America or whatever, they can speak great Chinese. It seems like they have Chinese friends. So this seems doable. It seems possible. I totally get that. Even the name of this podcast, you can learn Chinese, right? It's a lot of times, I think at the get-go, it's like, is this really possible? But you see those people that do, and it's like, wow. It was one thing to be in China and to, you know, hear all of the locals or to hear people whose family background was Chinese or something and who had past exposure, to hear them speak Chinese was one thing. But I really took something from being able to see other foreigners, people who looked like me and maybe came from somewhat similar backgrounds to see them be able to do it. And if you see it, you can be it. I think that's really true. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. It's inspiring. It was inspiring to me early on too. It's what, really? But yeah, you're right. Yeah. Bottom line, you know, hate to say it, but it's the white guy that speaks great Chinese, gives hope to us others in that same boat. It sounds to me like you were speaking Chinese or at least around a Chinese speaking environment the majority of the time. Yeah, that's true. And I was lucky to make a couple of great friends, lifelong friends, you know, during those early days in Beijing. What kept me there was, for some reason, Tsinghua kept renewing my scholarship. 
I'm not exactly sure why, because it wasn't necessarily my academic performance <laughs> that would <laughs> indicate that that was something that they should do. But they did. And so I ended up studying for two years at Tsinghua. Oh, wow. And during that time, my friends and I were really searching for something to do socially. Because at that point in Beijing, there weren't a whole lot of foreigners in our part of Beijing. And we wanted to meet people as college students do. My German friend, he had uh, worked as a DJ. And prior to going to China, I had worked as a music event organizer and promoter. And so we decided to throw some social events, college mixers. And at the first one, you know, with our terribly lo-fi photocopied invitation, <laughs> we rented out a bar, got to arrange for DJs. And so the first one we did was at the West Gate of Tsinghua at that bar, Loop Chant. Mm -hmm. I think we were expecting about 50 people because that was the capacity of the place. And we had several hundred turn up. Oh, wow. Nice. Throughout the night. So we were running around to the Chuar stands next door and buying out their <laughs> cases of Yanjing because the bar was being drunk dry. And so <laughs> it was an amazing experience. And so I was really lucky to be part of trying to do some community building in the Wudauko area from that point on. Wow, that's really neat. Did you ever run into any regulations? I'm always curious about this because I started a cinnamon roll bakery in China, so I've dealt with some of these regulation stuff. Did you encounter any of that stuff running these types of events? Not at that point. Later on, yes, because some of the entrepreneurial ventures that I got involved with, that was really the first one was throwing these student events. You know, and Later on, when I got involved in some that had a fixed location rather than a sort of transient traveling show, once we started to do bigger and better events, then of course there were more regulations to observe. But again, this was at a time in China where... The Wild West. <laughs> yeah, the no harm, no foul sort of era. You know, like <laughs> yeah. as, as long as you weren't disrupting people's lives or hurting anybody or anything like that, the authorities were generally busy doing other things at the time. Gotcha. Two years studying. So we've got about seven more years here. Now, we don't have to go through a travel log, but what got you to stick around and pursue essentially a career in China. And yeah. Chinese was, it seems like it was a really important part of that. I imagine by the time you graduated, you were like, hey, I could have start something here, right? Absolutely. And as I was finishing up at Tsinghua, I was also preparing to take the LSAT and trying to run a growing business. And I'll never forget taking the LSAT on the campus of Peking University in a building right next to the athletic track where all throughout the test, I could hear the teacher's <laughs> giving instructions to their uh, early morning classes there. But at that point, I think I had already decided to stay in China and ride this out and see where this would take me. Because one of the things that I always tell my Chinese friends is that everything I know about capitalism, I learned in China. <laughs> and I think for me, that's really true. You know, I was sort of a typical American kid, had maybe a little bit of knowledge about a lot of things, but didn't really understand much about entrepreneurship or capitalism or business. And so it was really that sort of on the ground experience in China and the opportunities that came my way that I was able to take advantage of and really learn a lot from. So what did you do? Started to do corporate events. And so we did corporate events for a lot of big companies there in China. And so we were able to sort of supplement or subsidize our passion that we had for music and so forth by doing these corporate events. And we also started to attend a lot of Beijing local underground music events, whether mm. it's punk or metal or hip hop or dance music or what have you. Was Kaiser Guo, was he there during your era? He was there during okay. my era. In fact, I have vivid memories of reading his writing. And I got to say, 
Kaiser's writing that I read in 2002, 2003 really gave me a lot of hope and let me see that there were people like me who were also in China from other places. That was really cool to be able to read that in an English language magazine and start to snoop around Beijing and other places that I hadn't been before, mostly because I lacked the language skills to do so. But as my language skills increased, I started to attend you know, a wide variety of concerts and music events to see local Beijing bands or bands from across China playing in these musical styles that I identified with from back home. And starting to see that I had far more in common with young Chinese people around my same age than I had previously thought. Because at Tsinghua University, a lot of the students I met there who wanted to hang out were studying nuclear physics or something mm. and didn't have a ton in common with them. And so it was really music and culture that kept me in Beijing. You know, I went there to study, but it was discovering this world that I really had never presumed to exist that kept me there. That's fascinating. I know you opened a bar at one point. You got to tell us about this. This sounds like it was a real ride. My friend from New Zealand, Jade Gray, opened a place called Lush in Wudauko. I was involved from the, the early stages there and eventually became the director of nightlife activities, for lack of a better word. And so I was responsible for you know running the bar and organizing the nightlife venues every night of the week, You know the nightlife activities, whether that meant booking bands or DJs or arranging for different events. And so we had all sorts of local bands and DJs and hip hop artists and all sorts of different people come through. And they found it to be sort of a, a nice place to hang out. You know, it was also an oasis for Westerners in Wudauko at that time. But Lush was really the place for a couple of years there in Wudauko and, and still going today. Wow, that's pretty cool. So the bar, it was also a performance venue. So you had bands and performers there, right? That's right. In the daytime, it was a restaurant and cafe. And then at nighttime, it turned into a bar and a live music venue. And we had some incredible times there. We had the who's who of the Beijing underground scene at the time that would regularly roll through. And it really became an incubator for the Beijing hip-hop scene. One of the pioneering bands in Chinese hip-hop, Yin Song, had just released their album on Scream Records. And they were there all the time. And so the four members of Yin Song became good friends of mine. So we would host open mic nights or MC battles, and we would have DJs come in. We'd have a famous Thursday night dance party that would regularly attract people from further afield in Beijing, which we thought was pretty cool. And so it was really sort of a golden era in Wudauko because there was a lot of commingling of different types of people. And, you know, we would have punk bands play there. We booked Hang on the Box, which is a pioneering all-female punk band, oh, wow. amongst others, and sort of became a creative hub, I would really say. It was a, a place for a lot of different people to exchange ideas and to explore things perhaps a little bit out of their comfort zone. I'm pretty sure that we turned a lot of <laughs> foreigners on to how vibrant and exciting the Beijing underground music scene was. That's interesting. Now you say foreigners, but I'm familiar with a bunch of these types of venues. And I was just performance, but bars and internationally themed establishments, at least in Shanghai. But what kind of local audience or flair did you have at this? And how many actual Chinese would come to these types of events? I feel like the mix on that and what kind of impact do you feel that had maybe on the, the local culture or scene or I guess the youth really in that area? Aside from working at Lush, my other partners and I would 
do other types of music events. You know, there was the Yen parties, which were the warehouse parties primarily in the 798 district, but at other venues around town. And those were electronic dance music, techno and jungle, drum and bass, and break beats. And we would partner with the organizers of those events and we would run the bar. And eventually I went on to take another position in that organization and help them with other events like the raves on the Great Wall and other things like that. You did a rave on the Great Wall? Did two. Yeah, oh, you got to tell me two. about that. That sounds cool. <laughs> yeah. Yen on the Wall. This was 2004 and 2005, I think it was. At that time, the sort of command and control of certain parts of the wall was designated to the village closest to the wall. And we went to Jinshanling. That's where we did both of those events. And the first one was, I don't know, maybe 1,500 people. And I think the second one was somewhere around 4,000 people. Wow. And we had two dance floors, one down in the parking lot and one actually up on the Great Wall. So we had two different sort of moods of music. And so I was able to DJ at the one on the Great Wall, which I count as a very unique life experience. But it was a fantastic time. At this point in Beijing, foreign students were increasing in number. Uh, A lot of people were seeing the light when it came to learning Chinese and how that might help them in the future. You know, all sorts of diplomats or children of diplomats who lived in Beijing and people who were running divisions of large companies and local Chinese people who were artists and who were musicians and actors and and all sorts of different people all together in the mix. Wow, that's pretty neat. Having a rave on the Great Wall, not everyone can say they've done that. I don't know that a lot of the things that we did in those days would be possible now, but we were guests in China. And so, of course, we wanted to obey the laws as much as we could and try to be as inclusive an event as we could. A lot of the sort of the demographics in our events, whether it's warehouse parties or helping to organize music festivals as part of the Yen group. I helped to work on the MIDI Music Festival, which is out in Haidian Park. Hmm. We'd always try to make things as inclusive as possible. Our ideal mixture would not be one where the foreigners were by far and away the largest group of people there. We always tried to make sure that there was a good balance of local folks and foreigners. It sounds like you did a whole bunch of events. You got a fun experience there, but today you're doing consulting. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about how important Chinese is to your current career and what you're doing now, and I guess how Chinese has opened up some of these opportunities for you. Learning Chinese and learning about Chinese culture, whether that's sort of day-to-day culture or business culture or the way things run in China, has been an incredible thing for me. You know, it's expanded my career and my personal life in ways that would take me a long time to describe But as I was involved in the underground music scene in Beijing, I started to work a lot with the foreign embassies in Beijing and helping them with their cultural programs and cultural exchange events and became very good friends with the Jamaican ambassador to China. We would do regular reggae events and he would show up and DJ at these events. (laughs) And so through that, got involved with some of the first ever musical exchange programs between China and Jamaica and also sent Chinese artists and DJs to Canada and England and other places. Those sort of interactions with the embassies and their cultural offices, I started to realize that I had somewhat of a skill set that maybe people wanted to access. You know, I was invited to speak at the British Council and at the Cervantes Institute and all these different cultural bodies that were seeking to connect their country with the Chinese population. And so would do music festivals with all of the Nordic countries and and this sort of thing. And so that's what really got me into consulting. And 
My last few years in China, I was still doing music events fairly regularly, but was also working closely with a lot of different embassies and starting to understand that with the tightening of the screws on the media industry and music and culture and so forth in China at that time that happened, you know, after the Olympics, started to realize that I had some skills that I had fought for and earned that might be useful in other domains. As I was working with these different embassies, and they would have me speak to visiting groups of business people or host their VIPs, you know, like I did for the Jamaican government during the Olympics, I started to realize, okay, if these people who are here in Beijing can still learn something from what I have to tell them, then imagine how much more the people who aren't convinced that they should come to China would have to learn about what it's like to do business in China and what not to do. You know, your first time in a plane, for example, trying to take controls of the aircraft and learn how to fly while you're in the air, it may take some encouraging. So the groups that I was addressing had already sort of been convinced that they should come to China and investigate what business opportunities there might be for them. And so I thought there might need to be some sort of pushing from the home countries or from the places where these businesses were based to get them to see the possibilities and opportunities. Oh, sounds great. Dan, I also know that you know, you're a big proponent of Chinese language education. Your father, Howard, I know him as well. He's a fantastic guy. He's been behind a lot of the dual immersion language programs here in Utah. But what is something that you think all Chinese language learners should know about learning Chinese? That's possible. It's possible to learn Chinese and that every little bit can keep you going. I remember when I first got to China, when you get into a taxi cab in Beijing and the driver says, Chunar, and then you tell them and then they ask you, you know, where you're from and you tell them and then they say, oh, your Chinese is really good. And I just remember living for those moments, you know, <laughs> feeling like I was just battered and beaten down because I felt like I couldn't communicate and I'd get frustrated. And sometimes I'd be the angry foreigner who would stamp his feet and storm out of a shop or something because he couldn't make himself expressed correctly. Yeah. And I just remember those little bits of encouragement from the Beijing uh, taxi driver corps. Got to shout them out too for their endless encouragement of my busted Chinese in the early days. For me, one of the big things, too, was watching Chinese TV because I was never a strong reader or writer. And to me, I think finding the right sorts of sources for each individual that can help them connect to the language and the culture in a really authentic way, I think, is super important. I mean, I know you and your partners have done research on the different types of language learning and the different ways that people connect to language learning. And to me, that totally rings true because for me, it was about culture, it was about music, it was about finding people with similar passions and having them be endlessly patient with me as I learned their language, and then watching CCTV and you know using the subtitles and matching that to the sounds that I heard coming from people on the screen. Those were some of the ways that helped me, but I think there's never been a greater need for Chinese language and culture learning in the United States. And my father, Howard, after we had returned from that trip to China in 2000, he really started ruminating about monolingualism in the United States. And he has a saying that he's fond of sharing that's monolingualism is the illiteracy of the 21st century. Mm -hmm. And so while I was in China studying, he was thinking through what the best practices for language learning were and how could Utah remain competitive and generate 
high school and college graduates who were prepared for the global workforce. And so he found that dual language immersion was the best bang for the buck and the best way to promote Chinese language learning from a young age and keep kids engaged and into it all through their high school years or middle school and high school years so that they could come out with something like proficiency once they came out of the program. And so at first there was some opposition. There was one legislator who, who said, well, my son you know, has lived in Shanghai and I just don't think that children can learn this language. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. My dad's reply was, well, there are hundreds of millions of Chinese children who manage it just fine. Yeah. <laughs> and so once the program started, it became very popular. And I think parents in Utah saw that this was a skill that could be useful for their children in whether they use it in the future in the workforce or not. It's a good way to connect with other countries and other cultures and to broaden your horizons. And this school year, we have over 19,000 K-12 Chinese language learners in the DLI program, the Dual Language Immersion Program in in Utah. In Utah, yeah. In Utah alone, yeah. Yeah, and that's because of your dad's legislation. It is, it is. And the Spanish learners I know are even larger. Yeah, I think that's closer to, that's 38,000 or something like that. So it's in six languages here in Utah. I don't think it's bragging if you can back it up, but I think that uh, Utah is sort of the model state when it comes to Chinese language learning in the United States. It is. A lot of people are calling my dad and asking him for advice and how did you do it and all this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really incredible is to think of the potential that these students, these 19,000 students could have for the future of U.S.-China relations. And to think that if they can stay engaged, if they stay in the program and come out of high school with college credits after they've passed the AP exam in ninth grade, if they come out of high school and have taken those college courses, they're close to a minor in Chinese by that point. It's amazing. And imagine the contributions they can make to diplomacy, to business, to the people exchanges, and to national and economic security for the United States. I think it's a wonderful thing. My kids are in the Chinese programs, and I'm like, you better be. (laughs) You guys live in China, you know. Two are born in China. That's really neat. I appreciate you sharing that background perspective. I've mentioned a a little bit about that on our podcast before, but it's great to hear that that in-depth, a little more background what's going on here in Utah. And on that note, even taking a step back for general biliteracy, or for general bilingualism, if you will, how important do you think that is to the future generations and to the future of not just, you know, America, but the world and being able to communicate across languages and cultures? I think it's absolutely essential. And I think that unfortunately, there's some voices in the United States who are deeply suspicious of China. And there's some reasons for that. But I think that when they go after Chinese language learning or that they seek to take away resources that are used for that cause... I can't think of anything more self-defeating. There's never been a more important time for Chinese language learning anywhere in the world. As China rises and becomes a bigger part of the global economy and moves in various ways across the world, our national security and economic security really depends on a clear, unbiased, objective understanding of China. And that can really only be gained through language study and through Chinese language proficiency. I see a lot of the talking heads on the news programs, and I know for certain some of these people don't speak Chinese and don't have a real understanding of what's going on the ground there. And the more we can have an actual understanding of China, which comes through language learning, and then we can right-size the challenges that China addresses, and then we can make correct and appropriate plans that can meet those challenges. 
I think if we look back at past U.S. engagement in conflicts in Vietnam or Afghanistan, we can see that the deficiency of language and culture understanding of those countries contributed to the terrible losses that American forces took there. And so I think that I'm hopeful for a peaceful and an equitable U.S.-China relationship in the future. But regardless of whether China is our friend or our foe, we need to have increased numbers of Chinese language learners in the United States. Very well spoken. I really appreciate that, Dan. Dan, I think for being here on this podcast, sharing your experience, your stories. Thanks. It's good to have you here in the heart of Sugar House, Salt Lake City, and really honored to be a part of this. Thanks, Dan. We appreciate it. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teacher, cousins, chef, ringer, marketer, editor, engineer, programmer, copywriter, lawyer, and that one gal named Sophia. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mannercompanion.com or tag us on social media, hashtag mannercompanion. Apologies to John Cena, we just ran out of time. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Guo, and interview editor is Dominic Edgley. I'd like to thank our special guest, Dan Stevenson. And of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Paston. See you next time. <laughs>